0: welcome to the newest episode of New Horizons. I'm your host, Steve, and joining me in the studio today, we have Dr. Trek himself, Mr. Larry Nemacek. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, it's good
1: to be here with you and congratulations on the new series, the new show. And I don't mean discovery, I mean
0: (laughs) New Horizons. And as people who listened to at least our first pilot episode of New Horizons, where we sort of said who we were as the hosts, will know that I do a lot of podcasting and well, let's just say get around (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do. Yes, you do. For people who aren't sure who you are, could you just give a brief introduction of who you are and how you're involved with Star Trek and what it is that you're currently doing? Oh, oh, you put it on my shoulders. Okay. I've been a fan since I was a kid. I have many
1: interests, uh, but people probably know me coming out of my theater and my journalism background. I did The Next Generation Companion, edited the American Magazine Communicator officially for eight years. Worked on all gears from the very dirt roots of the Star Trek fact files through the end, and including the Japanese edition. I'm spending a lot of time here. And uh, just more recently did the Stellar Cartography book of maps. Which um, is beautiful, I might add. Oh, well, thank you. But, uh, but you know, my, my I love the actors, love the stories. There's so many people to talk about that. I tried to fill in the gap and my passion, both background, either whether it's in-universe canon collecting, which is how I got started professionally. And we moved from the Midwest out to LA over my companion book and my original concordances. Before there was internet, before there was encyclopedia from the Akutas, uh, which I love. And before, surely before there was Memory Alpha, uh, doing that kind of work. And also then the behind the scenes interviewing the writers and designers and creatives. And that is what the last 10 years, when things were in the fallow times, uh, led me to finally put all my preferences and my background and my assets together into what portal 47 is. So I have a LarryNemichek.com that kind of spotlights a lot of what I'm doing, but portal47.net is my eight point or now nine point monthly package. It's like a backstage pass for more in-depth track. And I say, it's like a mini con all year long. And (laughs) and we have the deep divers, but one of the big parts of that, those different pieces is using a, a conference call software to have round tables with me, The Ask Dr. Trek Roundtable, now twice a month, and one just for Europeans, since I've gotten six European members that we do online, um, webcam and slideshows, but also we have a guest every month, and it's it's a person that people deserve to hear from. I have a phrase I say that Portal is for new fans, old fans, and fans who have no idea how much Star Trek they don't know, and (laughs) I'm not talking about Discovery, I'm talking, or the show Discovery, I'm talking about everything before, and we'll have Discovery people as soon as they don't get shot for talking about it, so... But that's where a lot of my passion's gone, but also where we've been working on a documentary called The Con of Wrath. A lot of your viewers or listeners have probably heard about that, and we're actually now starting to wrap it up and edit that. And I just started, we're starting a new podcast for the Roddenberry Network called The Trek Files, which is getting into Gene's archives and documents that no one's really looked at out of his files. So that's going to be exciting, and I have one more coming down the line with Roddenberry that's going to be a video show, and uh, that's around the corner too, but we're going to launch the little one first. So yeah, it's been kind of busy, and then they plop this new Star Trek show in the middle of all of us. How dare they? (laughs) I know. Anyone would think that we've just
0: celebrated 50 years. Take your 50th birthday and then go home. But no, we have to keep making more. Thank God. Oh, yes. Needless to say, fans of the show have been looking forward to a new series for, well, 12 years? I would think that, and you know what? It's it. So while we're
1: talking about this, I say this. Everybody else, you just said it. We all say, "Oh, finally, in twelve years, and twelve years, and twelve years, and we've been." I, you know, I, I did a, a Trekland blog post about I've said for ages that we lived, we were living in the fall since two thousand five, and Enterprise went away. That we're living in the fallow times, you know, the way Doctor Who was for a while, the way Star Wars was for a while, and it's just the cycles, unfortunately, catching up with the money guys and the suits, and, and maybe some public mainstream. Although I think it's misread. I think Trek would have been popular through all of that. But we talk about being in the fallow. I talk about being in the fallow times or maybe wandering in the wilderness, you know, for 12 years, kind of like a, a biblical allusion there. And, and I've said wandering in the desert. And I hope it's not a spoiler yet, but that opening scene or almost the opening scene of the Vulcan Hello, the, the pilot one hour of Discovery. They're literally walking in the desert. <laughs> and I thought, oh, is, that's kind of an interesting metaphor answer to, um, you know, image to what I've been saying. I wonder if someone wrote that just for me, which I doubt. Uh, I know. I haven't had a chance to ask yet, though. But the fact that they get themselves home, it's almost like it's, yes, fandom, yes, Star Trek, we've all been wandering in the desert, and now we're beaming up and and we're going home. And I thought, it hit me Sunday night as we were kind of counting down, and we were holding a, here in the States, you know, it debuted Sunday night, and I was coming back from uh, Salt Lake City Comic Con and trying to get back in time to be a co-host at the thing I was co-hosting, a view party. And it just hit me when I was kind of in the middle of all that, that that opening scene was kind of a, Funny illustration, a reach out to one of these phrases that I've been saying. But yes, it is so good to have the damn fallow times over, right?
0: Exactly. And just for people, because we were going to have a lot of people watching New Horizons who have come in because of the Kelvin timeline films. We've been waiting 12 years for Star Trek to come back on the small screen, and it's not just Star Trek in general, because we have, of course, had the three movies over the last 12 years.
1: Right. And you know what? I started to say this and I, and I forgot. And thank you for prompting me. What I was going to say was when I say 12 years, I know, of course, we've had the Kelvin movies. but to, and, and not even about what they're, a lot of people, you know, had issues with them, didn't like them. I, they were not my first choice, but I'm, hopefully I'm smart enough to see that, well, A, they were very well cast and, and enjoyable. And they kept Star Trek in the mainstream eye, and they've brought a ton of fans, you know, hundreds of thousands of new fans into the fold before we were episodic. But, you know, I still go with the math and your human nature and say that Star Trek is not really Star Trek unless it's a new series unspooling with, you know, weekly adventures and and making commentary every week. And, you know, bless their hearts. And my God, I love Carl Urban's McCoy, uh, along with most of the rest of the cast, but they're just not the same as having a series. So, when I say it's been 12 years since we've had Trek, I'm not ignoring them, but I mean, and I'm not dissing them either, but I mean real episodic Trek. And it's, and when they announced going with the movie route, I, I knew that's what would be. And some people took me as, you know, uh, ragging on the movies even before they'd come around. A lot of people still ragged on them. Um, <laughs> but to me, it's like we won't have real Trek until we have a series. So, when I talk about 12 years without Trek, that's what I mean. And I do know, though, that a lot of fans came in with the movies. And welcome to the family. I think they've had time to get assimilated since Beyond's been over a year. I know a lot of people that came in with the movies. I know, I know some people that have came in with the movies, and as most of them do, I think, found all the older Prime series, and at least more than one person has said, wow, the J.J. movies were crap. <laughs> but that's <laughs> what they came in with. You know, it's like, it's like dissing on their first girlfriend. But... That is the reality. So yes, acknowledge that and acknowledge the role they have. But this is real Trek, right?
0: Yeah, because with movies, you're very limited to what you can tell in a couple of hours. But with a series, you have this ongoing thing that you can get a lot of story out, and it's what Star Trek is famous for. I think one person once said to me, "Star Wars is the sort. The new movies are more Star Wars because." It is literally just a mini story, which you can't really get all the points you get across normally in all the episodes of a series, which I can see their point. don't quite agree, but everyone has their own view on them. But we've digressed. Right. So- <laughs> I was going to say, the, movie-
1: the movies also are using character, even though it's an alternate universe take on them, they're also characters and relationships that we already knew. And if you threw new characters into a movie format, that's a big risk, both yeah. financially and storytelling. So if you're going to un- unravel, if you're going to to reveal and develop new characters, you have to do that on television if you're looking at a long-term project. That's not the best format for Star Trek with new a new characters and new, a new format. So yay. Yay, yay, yay. But yeah, let's, let's get on to Discovery.
0: Now, Discovery, we're basically 10 years before the start of the five-year mission with Kirk. So... It's another prequel, but it's not as early as Enterprise. We're, what, 90 years after Archer? Right.
1: Well, actually, it would be, she specifically says 2256, so we actually have a time tie down, and Archer's the 2250, so it's actually like 100 and, uh,
0: yeah, it's like 100 years. Yeah, because I remember it was around 100-odd years from Archer to Kirk so I just deducted 10 from 100, to so get 90. <laughs>
1: right. Well, I mean, that's what everybody said, and now that Discovery's out there, and being even more specific, it, you go back, and it's, it's from the 2150s to the 2260s from Archer to Kirk, so that's at technically 110 years, which nobody wanted to sound anal and say 110 years, but that's actually what it was, so now we're actually at a century past Archer.
0: Now, before we get into the actual show, with the new show, we get a new intro, and this one is very different. We've got, I'd say it's very fringe-like on the opening, and it's sort of taken some aspects that we saw with lots of different sort of items. You know, like in Enterprise, you'd got a whole load of stuff in history going by. This time you have a lot of items related to Discovery being shown in an animated way, and me it came across... very fringe-like especially with the sort of Vulcan salute in there it just made me think fringe and you've then got the music which is half TOS but then in a way half Discovery so it's a big sort of merge between sort of what we've seen before but to give us something completely new what were your thoughts of the new intro that we've got?
1: Well, no, I enjoyed it. I they uh, you know they dropped the a tease of the music what about a week or a week or two with a wonderful video of uh, of uh, I think it's Jeff Russo I think uh, composing not just composing but conducting the studio orchestra the first time it was really cool to have a camera there when a Star Trek theme was being recorded especially for a series. And uh, you could tell he was very—he was a fan and impressed with the moment. And I—I I was surprised that it had so much homage to the original series. Now, the opening, the fanfare—you kind of halfway expect, you know, starting off, dum dum dum, and then takes off. That's—that's that's kind of been done. Coming back full-throated to the closing coda there from the original series threw me a little bit, but I did enjoy it because it seemed to me right off, the first time I heard it, my first impressions were there were, I'll call them the optimistic brass of Voyager in the middle, Mm -hmm. and then there's the kind of, for lack of a better word, the working gears, the, you know, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum kind of a, a feel. Uh, I guess they're cellos or strings or whatever, but um, the Giacchino feeling from some of the, um, you know, it's almost like a work, 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 work kind of uh, theme from some of the Kelvin movies. And then I swear the first time I heard it, I felt like I was hearing like some low bass and cello, stringed, kind of moaning, dissonant, but but like, I don't know, going somewhere, murky mysteriousness that I kind of got out of the... the um, the DS9 theme even. Now I've gone back listening later and, and I don't think that hit me quite so much. But it just struck me that it was a real, the, the original series motifs uh, you'll know, pop out at you really. But there's a vibe from, it felt like a lot of the other themes too in there. And I didn't know if that was, in, I'd love to talk to him sometime and see if that was intentional. You know, especially bridging the, the recent movie world and, and uh, the, the classic themes. Yeah. Oh, and the, and the animation I thought was very clever. It struck me as instead of having space vistas um, that it was kind of a since it was like blueprints and parchment it seemed like it was kind of a building block approach yeah you know yeah. like a little bit like same, the same vein of enterprise only instead of actual images from space history we're getting the building blocks of the show and its universe and um, and, and again appealing to totally new viewers and maybe Kelvin timeline era people who have not seen a, who have not seen a Star Trek un, you know unspool every week and that's the other cool thing we should talk about this is I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it, <laughs> for, you know, for all of us to finally you – know, our perspective is we're finally getting tracked back. But all of the people who have become fans since Enterprise – who have never had the experience, again, a movie's one thing, but had the experience of the week to week to week debut and seeing a new show for the first time and talking about it and debating it online now, not just running down to your local club or convention, but also that you're all doing this at the same time as all the old fogies. (laughs) It's like, you are not the new kid and everybody else in the room has seen something they've talked about it for 20 years. You and they and everybody is seeing new Star Trek at the same time. Nobody's got the edge on anybody, you know? And I'm just so excited for those fans
0: and especially with the streaming service it means that although we don't get it exactly the same time because with me in the uk i'm getting it a few hours after it finishes so there's not this huge gap which we used to have with the previous series where it used to show in the us and then we'd get it months or a year later well right and netflix is in
1: 188 countries so you know zambia and the seychelles or whatever <laughs> are getting star trek you know even months later they're getting it at all so it's it's a reflection of the globalization of the world and good on them. And, you know, the Star Trek vibe, even though this is starts off in a darker place, it's still Star Trek and the Roddenberry vision. And it's getting to so many people around the world who are either hungry for it or don't know they're hungry for it. I know the United States is hungry for it, <laughs> whether <laughs> they know it or not. So we're just in an interesting time right now. I can't think of a better, uh, a better time when the world needed a Star Trek, you know, a well-made Star Trek back on yeah. uh, penetrating the culture. And we've got that. So yay on that.
0: Now one thing that I've noticed with this is the quality. Now you look back to all the stuff that was created and well especially with today's TV it can look quite cheap. They didn't really have the budgets that TV shows get now especially in sci-fi you need big budgets and this time they were given the budgets and it works. To me this is sort of movie quality television. The visuals that you see on screen are just so crisp. I just think it's looks beautiful
1: well yes and that's but that's where we are that's where the technology is i mean it's the 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 people the new fans coming along who are very faithful and diving into all the old series sometimes i i wonder if we're i mean i wonder if we're forgetting context or i want to be there for everybody and go now now just think a second like we we it's so easy to think about this now or to forget this now enterprise is a huge improvement in in just production quality what they were able to do over say the first year of next generation when the show came back after a gap but they were using digital the last year of enterprise was totally digital as far as the way they shot it yeah they were able to put you know they had they had actual flat screen plasma tvs by then they could actually do warp streaks out the windows on the sets as a practical and not have to dub in not have to mat in you know warp stars where the beginning the early years of next gen after a few shows if they went to the observation lounge they they had a dictate they had a a dictum handed down always go to impulse before you go to the observation lounge (laughs) because (laughs) warp stars out the window was showy or having them reflect in the top was a really cool showy thing but it was expensive as hell so it's like they always had to go to warp or go ahead go to impulse before they went to the observation lounge yeah because it's all done the green screen wasn't it well right they had to mat it in and that was pre-cgi so they were having to like optically put it in but my point is, we think about that now with Next Gen, but Next Gen was this whole quantum leap above the poor original series, right? And, and even in its time, the original series was busting the gut of Hollywood to do TV opticals. So, I mean, on time and on a budget. So the technology has improved. Each series has been a standout above the you know, push the envelope production-wise and look-wise. So what you were just saying, 20 years from now, they're going to look at, at, at Discovery and go, yeah, it, it was okay, but it's not like today. I mean, we'll do that again, and that's the way it should be, but when we do today stand and look back at the older series, I hope people remember that each one in its time was pushing the envelope and was a huge leap above what had been done even in Star Trek before, and if you look at other shows, science fiction or not, from the same period, you'll go, holy cow, they were really pushing the envelope of what was available in television at the time. So, you know, yay. And CBS wants to compete on a Game of Thrones level for quality and attention and respect and awards. So, you know, that's that was their goal all along. So and I think they're there. But again, when we compare this to the older shows, we can't you know, we can't take a time machine and take the technology. They would have loved it. They would have loved it, but yeah.
0: Well, at least with the streaming service, they needed more time to get the production done. They were actually given it. If it was on network TV where everything was sold to be at a particular time and time slot for advertising, we wouldn't have been able to get what we've got. So um, it's one of the benefits with the streaming system, which I think has actually worked, especially after seeing the first two episodes.
1: Oh, right. That and only having 15 episodes versus 22, 26, which is still the old model. A lot of the network shows use, but between like your BBC model and the PBS model and the streaming the premium channels here.
0: But of course we weren't originally going to get fifteen episodes. I think we were going to get was it eleven or twelve originally? Uh thirteen.
1: Thirteen. Thirteen. Episodes.
0: That but because their stories meant when looking at it that they wanted and needed more, they were given an extra two. It would be a lot harder to have got that, I think, if it was on a network TV where sort of they'd sold time and advertising and everything else
1: well right and we've said i've said and other people have said for 10 12 years that when star trek came back it wouldn't be on an american commercial network it ought to be at first we were saying showtime the premium channel like hbo because showtime is owned by cbs so like cbs would have put it on its own but being on a premium channel where they're not number watching every they're not Mm -hmm. living on the bubble and praying for the ratings and having to compete with the same direct commercial driven, you know, numbers that other shows live and die by and not to have no faith in Star Trek to, to attract people. But that's a commercial thing and um, a, a commercial bar to judge by. And if Star Trek is in a niche audience like a lot of these other shows are, then it really ought to be there. And that's where, Mike, how many actual millions of people are watching Game of Thrones and how does that compare to? A network show and that that whole model is different so they're happy to have the signups when they went from 13 to 15 i think i wouldn't be surprised if that was also a financial money decision because they were spending the money anyway and if you amortize all the startup costs like the effects like building the CG models and then building the sets themselves and the R&D for the costumes and props and all that. Probably two more episodes. Probably made it cheaper. That sounds, if that math makes sense. Oh well, yeah, and you because, spread it out over 15, amortizes out. Yeah, because you've got everything
0: made already. So yeah, it,
1: I it think makes the stage it... costs. Right, the stage costs are a drop in the bucket compared to what they've already had to spend, so they'll have two more to eventually put on DVDs, and, you know, there'll be two more in the mix that are probably a bargain by the time they bought 13, so...
0: Now, moving on to the story... Oh, that. To... Yeah. So let's start to move on to the sort of the teaser of the first episode. Now, there are two sort of parts to this teaser. We had, first of all, the Klingons, which usually you'd think an episode would start with the ship because it's usually the hero sort of thing of it, the show, and... But of course. Well, first two episodes, we don't actually see Discovery still, but this starts with Klingon's all new look. What did you think about this? Well, you mean
1: a story structurally, it's fine. It's kind of a it's a different shakeup. Again, we have to remember it's, it's people today looking back who maybe since I saw them and lived through the TV of the time. You know, The Next Generation was the first Star Trek of the ensemble era. The original series was, you know, Leeds, Second Banana, and All the Little People. And then after the kind of the revolution of the 80s here in the States with Hill Street Blues and L.A. Law, the ensemble show came out and, and Next Gen reflects that and all the other shows have. And, and this one continues to. So a lot of the, you know, the era, the way TV was made and formatted and structured keeps changing. And that applies the storytelling. And, and that's uh, the way these streaming shows that are sm- like small movies can take the leisure of doing that and starting off with a Klingon thing. And they trust that people tuning in aren't going to go, "Oh, this isn't a people running around on a ship." You know, what are these guys? They <laughs> they're they're used to like the police and the crime procedurals where you start off with characters and somebody dies and you don't even see your regular characters until after the credits roll. That's that's the movie world that we live in now. I mean, the t- even the TV world that we live in now. So that's that structural part that's cool and that just kind of heightens the tension for when you do finally see your character. And then we do finally see our Starfleet heroes they're wandering in the desert. They're not even on their ship yet. So it's like it's still even a tease to finally see what their bridge looks like and then as we all know these first two hours are are not so much a pilot as like a prologue right or yeah it's it's
0: a prelude to discovery
1: right but and as far as the klingon goes i i know it's like so many other aspects of the visual canon I know that people want to put a spin and do that, uh, you know, and and where do you, there's the whole debate, just like we have with Enterprise, only now it's amped up even more because more people seem to be watching and caring, that how do you do an older series only for today's audiences and all that, blah, blah, blah. And I don't think it's a a problem because I think you should, I think people are conflating cinematography with design. You can build anything, but how are you going to shoot it, light it, and edit it? And that's what the modern look comes in. I'd still love to see. And, and I keep getting these hints from people that maybe we're not so far from... Like, they haven't given up on the 60s look totally. It's, it's more about how it's filmed than how it's designed. So maybe yeah. we'll ease that way before these 15 are out but as far as the Klingons go I've had no problem because I thought the Klingons were overdue for some species diversity anyway these are we get confirmed that there are 24 houses they all don't live on Kronos they all didn't you know the last few hundred years haven't lived on Kronos and at Vegas they were even talking about um, uh, the the makeup people and the Klingon actors both were talking about how some of theirs there's some almost like six million dollar man type uh, bionics implanted in a lot of like Klingons, like almost like plastic surgery, have additive technology implanted in it. They use their skull for it. And, um, It just is an advantage in battle or an advantage in combat or an advantage in dealing with other, you know, other people uh, heightens their senses and that they've kept their hair uh, short or or bald to enhance that. Now, we'll see if that comes up in the story, but some of that's been and maybe that was retconned after they had the designs approved. But they were they were talking openly. You can go back and find the videos online where they were talking about that. So we'll see. But my my thing is that all the other Klingons are out there. We're just seeing a few sects of—you get it that we're just seeing a couple of houses, a couple of sects.
0: Yeah, because what we've usually seen in the past is every planet we go to, apart from one in TOS sort of thing, which really does it, is everyone looks the same. It's like here, you go to Africa, um, and then you go to the UK, and then you go to China. People look so different, and living there, you have different people as well. We're not just a species that looks exactly the same, and Trek, mainly because of money and makeup, and costumes, they couldn't do that in the past, and this time they are approaching it. But what I loved, I'm never really one person for subtitles, but the fact that we actually had aliens speaking their native tongue, and only English when it suited the situation for them, I just thought was fantastic.
1: Yeah, they were so proud of that. They've hired, uh, I think her name's Robin Stewart, but a major uh, Klingon language. And she's a woman, which is cool. A, a, a vocal coach and a Klingon language person to translate and then coach the actors. And it—and the—and they've been doing a lot of appearances. Mary Chifo, who plays uh, Lorel, the female. The, it's hard to tell at the beginning until you're really into it. But Laurel, the female. And then Cole, who was the other male house leader who's challenging Tukovma's um, kind of charismatic leadership, shall we say. And not not the side, not the albino Klingon that was at the side, but they they've been been making a lot of since since Vegas. And then I think at to the Toronto Convention, they've been making a lot of personal appearances, embracing fandom, jumping down in amongst the fans, but they love talking about and showing off. How they've so immersed in their Klingonness, and how they embraced it, and um, and to reissue. In fact, this one very poignant Klingon fan at Vegas was in the question line. I was very proud. They they had they kind of last minute brought tons of uh, Voyager. Voyager of discovery <laughs> discovery paneling uh, actors and writers and design people into Vegas on Wednesday it was kind of an empty day and they were able to fill that up at the last second and all the panels like four straight hours of, of paneling and all of the people in the audience were s- a lot of people are skeptical that the reaction from a lot of people I hear around me is they liked it but they're holding off to subscribe to CBS All Access which we have to do here in the states and that's a sore spot with a lot of people too that they wish it was on Netflix like the rest of the world has but this was announced as a business move first and a Star Trek content you know, issue later. Yeah, but people—they there were a lot of people who want. You know, I want to believe. To quote Fox Mulder, and and they did a lot of good. The actors, uh, Neville and the and um, the makeup people and the writers, each in their turn, and the Klingon actors when they were sharing stage really talked to a lot of people and really their enthusiasm and reassurances. And one Klingon fan got up very poignantly and said, "I want to embrace this. I want to be excited. I know what I see. Hearing you guys today has has helped me out a lot. But please just tell me that I." As a Klingon fan, I'm not going to lose what I have loved for 30 years. And it was a really poignant way of putting it. And a mature and sophisticated way of putting it. It wasn't, you know, a dumb fan. And they had a great answer for him. He says, I totally know that. We've we, basically were saying, you're seeing one particular house and sect that you haven't seen before, but know that we're in our minds are retconning that, that there's 24 houses and there's diversity and they all didn't, you know, arise on Kronos and it's a big empire. And if you look at, at my stellar cartography charts, you see it's a, they're second only to the Federation and how they're spread. And, and instead of a lot of little, planets. They've basically kind of one species or a couple of side species. And and they even make fun of that. T'kov even says it's Andorians and Telorites which I loved. Andorians <laughs> and Tellarites and humans and Vulcans living side by side. Ugh. You know, and and uh so anyway, so I thought the Klingons were ready for some species diversity and even to the point of the uniforms and the And I somebody I thought had said someday you will see even smooth heads, right? I mean, it took 25 years to come up with the smooth head explanation. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was retconned in and that was 25 years later. So we get there eventually and I and these the there are so many fanboys and fangirls working on staff of the writers, much less in the design team, especially in the writers. And uh, I think I think a lot of those things are being carried. And other people like The Game and, and, and David Mack's uh, novels, they get into some... And Kirsten Beyer is a novelist for Voyager, and she's exactly. in the writing staff to coordinate. There's a lot of retconning and corner smoothing hmm. going on even as we speak in these other media, so... I say to people who are a little uh, still about some of these things, like, hang on, hang on. The process is
0: already at work. Exactly. Now, at the end of the teaser, we finally get a view of, two things. One is the ship because it comes down low to the planet and then secondly the new beaming effect. So First of all we see the Shinzon um, Shinzon, and what did you think of the ship? Now I know we saw quite a bit of that in the trailers. This is the first time we've seen a new ship that hasn't been in the Kelvin timeline. Um, It's a little bit different. It's got almost a Tom Paris look. It's got little fins and sort of the deflectors um, a purple colour rather than blue. So they're small changes compared to how we've usually seen a lot of the ships i was gonna
1: say i just got to talk to john eves and he was reminding me of something that that we we came up with for the 60s ships as the modern model building you know with visual effects and as the sets you know got more and more complex that um the 60s era the kirk the original era we don't have to totally throw that out because the sleekness and smoothness can be its own answer and this is what i always say it's texture not trivia that basically that the attitude there was it was a design era phase but that they were so powerful they didn't have to show it on the outside the star wars and onward you know all the greeblies oh look at all the texture that was in a practical way that was done to try to show scale more than you did with the, the models that were smooth-sided which were cheaper to do but also that's just what the technology of the model building or, or even the set building was right on, yeah. on their
0: budget and also it's also one of the things that david Mack addresses as well when it comes to desperate hours the differences in ships and sort of like ready rooms and things like that which I thought was really good
1: right well you're ahead of me on that I've talked to David about it but I haven't read it read it but his new book which just came out but but right David has his share and the novelists and the game side are doing their share to kind of smooth like I said smooth the corners of some of the rough edges of this that maybe a year and a half ago and while the production was settling down you know during and before and during and after when Brian was hands-on involved and different you know maybe multiple teams of people before the before the shakedown crews of behind the scenes shook down, as all the series have, right, as all the new eras have done. And you got to let them have that time to do that. It's not going to roll out perfectly from day one, and everybody knows what's going to be there at the end. But ship-wise, John was explaining to me that the attitude they took, because there's a dramatic need to have a lot of ships to populate the fleet, but then you've got to fill the canon need to hopefully have them look a certain way, and the creatives want to do certain things, and different people are saying, no, canon would be this, canon would be that. Well, I want to design this. Well, the story needs this. And you've got all that competing, and you're not just bringing out one at a time. They're trying to do a you – know, and some of them are going to be background ships and some of the hero ships out front, like the Shenzhou and like Discovery and, and the Europa, right? The Admiral's flagship that gets so – Yeah, because that was, that was,
0: that that was Miranda, Miranda
1: class, wasn't it? I thought it was a new class, but I just was going to talk about the <laughs> – was that – did you guys in Europe kind of feel like with well, the Klingons cutting it in half, the whole – imagery of where the klingons are maybe representing and europa was standing for europe being divided again i just thought that kind of that just kind of hit me in the face but but, i did but it
0: it took me i think it was the fifth watch to actually see that because the first few times it was just the animation behind that scene i just love it it's just so detailed so well done and it's all just gave me chills it's just like that's just so good but yeah i did suddenly think Hmm, Europa splitting in half. Hmm. I wonder if that is a sort of <laughs> a commentary right. on sort of this last sort of year.
1: Well, and the 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 symbolism of what the Klingons are doing—that they've been, you know, split up disparate groups that have been out of galactic politics, and they want to reassert their force and their pride and their kind of nationalistic pride—and and. and poking fun at a very diverse federation. That was like, hmm, that rings that rings over here. That rings out on your side of the pond, I'm sure. Has a real global message to it. Exactly. As far as the ships go, I said real quick. So John told me that what, what the attitude was to explain all that was that they were it was an era of expansion. He was saying it was akin to the U.S. say Air Force in the 50s and 60s that they were trying all kinds of new designs and new technologies as test beds, and they weren't necessarily putting every single one of those into production. So maybe there's just one or two models of all these ideas, and there's a lot of diversity that way. And uh, whether you know, and they all got class names if they if they did go into production, but maybe they all didn't. So we may just see some of these as one and two off ships while they're while they're settling into the new designs that you know, became the refit enterprise within 10 or 15 years. So, because at yeah. this point, the Enterprise Constitution class is already 10 years old, so it's based on older technology too. But there's a lot of diversity there, and, and again, they have to have the dramatic uh, needs of visually getting to new viewers. This is the Shenzhou. Bridge is on the bottom, which was interesting. you know. And we'll see the discovery later, and they will look old in Starfleet terms, but also how do you get from the busy surface to the slick Enterprise of Kirk's yeah. time? And,
0: and, you know, but, but they're retconning that. I think we'll be fine. I, I was fine. I was fine with all the ships. And what about the transporter effect? To me... I love it. it. The way that it sort of disintegrates the molecules sort of thing, it sort of evaporates up and then sort of reassembles. Because basically that is what the transporter is supposed to be doing. But this time it really looks that way. I, it sounds like you're liking this transporter beam better than any transporter
1: effect you've ever seen before.
0: Um, Yeah, to be honest, I have actually <laughs> really liked what they've done with, with the transporter beam this time. Because when people have talked about transporters and how they work, What you're seeing is how it's actually been described in basically all of canon. And I just think it's just really good because it's, again, it's another thing that they can actually get done in this day and age.
1: Right. And in evolution now the the room itself on the Shenzhou threw me when I first saw the picture. I'm like, please god, please god tell me this is like some retro attempt at a different <laughs> style of transporter. And that's basically what they've said. Exactly, because
0: so, they dis- okay. they explain all that in episode 2. Right, and
1: it's odd though that they w- that Enterprise would start off with a vertical, basically a vertical transporter if that's now our new terminology, well, and that they would experiment think... with horizontal and then come back to vertical.
0: And with Enterprise, you'd got those sort of back pads which almost could have been buffers or something else because if you remember that they'd only got a small shell because originally the enterprise transporter wasn't actually designed for people they had to fix it and do a patch so it would actually allow people to be transported so when you actually have a look at their pad they've actually got sort of the almost three walls if i recall correctly and then you've got the top and bottom pads. so we don't know if the bits behind the walls were actually doing something
1: well that's true that's true i need to go back and re i'm thinking of how the set looked on stage rather than the effect but it was dicey i know that they had a big learning curve <laughs> <laughs> from you know from where they were oh we're scared of this and well okay well the story needs a quick exit so yeah <laughs> we don't yeah. always have yeah
0: but again but, like uh, you said with the ships that they were experimenting with layout so it could have been that they started with vertical but they thought that the horizontal would have been better but the energy required for that meant that they went back to using the vertical afterwards because that it may not have been as good for technique but for power consumption. It was better, so that was used. Maybe they'll go into that a little bit more later in the series. But as with most of this stuff, you can always think of something to explain it away. Well,
1: right. And the fact that they got into that right off the bat shows that that was really planned from the beginning, which was was healthy. I think part of it's also meant to reinforce to people who are not so familiar with the track background that, you know, this is an older ship. This is a newer ship and even then it's it's uh they're acting like the discovery is a new ship when we get into this the, the weirdo thing with the connection between the engines and and the mushrooms and all of those hints <laughs> um you know it's almost like is stem it's in the science staff or is in the engineering staff we'll see we'll see what's going on with that but yeah it's they're doing some of that just as visual people who come in concerned about a script more than they are about the canon overview to a certain point are going to be worried about those things and then as the whole as the arc settles in, we may see some some corner rounding or smoothing or some things emphasized and de-emphasized, but that's just that's just part of the process. It's really funny. I said everybody somebody was talking about how this was a, such a rough pilot and it was only a prologue. We hadn't even seen the real show yet. And I was saying, yeah, it's not like next gen where the pilot was just so, you know, where the finale wound up just at the same high plane as the pilot was. And they kind of shut up. Because you have to let all of them have their room to grow a little bit. And on one hand, the pressure is on even more. But on the other hand, this is streaming. So it's not like, oh, third episode, fourth episode, you're canceled. No, they've invested in the whole 15 hours. It's a different model. And if people aren't used to, if we have track people who are not used to the Game of Thrones, you know, or the, or the, I'll say the BBC model or the streaming model where it's all, it may not come back for a second season, but the whole first season is out there. And, and they even tend to give most shows a second chance for a second season after they spent the money and they want yeah. to keep amortizing it. It's a, I think, it's a whole different mindset.
0: Yeah, well, I think it, what would probably help people settle on the show, because especially with science fiction is because so much science fiction because of the cost gets scrapped after a year or two a lot of people think well i'm not going to bother investing in it so they don't i think now would be a good time for them to actually decide okay we're actually going to have a second and even third series and actually announce that because then people say well if i actually try it out and get invested in it i know i'm going to get at least three years worth of TV to watch and to get drawn into. Right. So I, there's so many things. I,
1: I said a lot the last few years that Star Trek fans are a lot like uh, generals. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes if they don't watch out, they go into the new Star Trek with their head in the old one. Yeah. Right. And, and they don't realize that five or ten or whatever years have gone by and that the world around them has changed. The landscape of the media has changed in Star Trek's case and and they go in expecting it to be like where they left off or criticizing things preemptively based on where things left off and it's like forgetting that you know forget that it may be a whole different cast of creatives right at work here it's the world has changed the technology has changed the productions have changed all the tools have changed and improved and upgraded and then after a while it's like oh, oh okay yeah but in now all that vacuum time in the fallow years they're projecting forward thinking well i'm not going to do this because this 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 and this and it's like no that, that won't happen that way the, <laughs> the economics are different the technology is different the delivery systems are different exactly so it's funny to watch people kind of go oh <laughs>
0: <laughs> now let's move on to some of the characters the main character we're following this time is not the captain it's actually the first officer which is michael burnham now one of the differences it's like what they did with the original series because as we know anyone who's really followed trek knew that there was the original pilot which got scrapped but then integrated into a later storyline the cage where we actually had a female first officer which is where number one came from and we also had a alien which was spock which was the half human half falcon officer and gene Roddenberry decided because he had to lose one of them that he could do more with an alien species on as the main character rather than the female lead role especially as they'd already got a female communications officer so he'd already got a female on the bridge which for that era was a big thing because it was always only males served and things like that So it was a good twist of the original series where you'd sort of got a human with quite a rigid Vulcan upbringing who tries to emulate in many ways the Vulcans, and keeping her emotions sort of at bay, but in a lot of ways failing to do so.
1: Yeah, the tension I mean, if there's one drawback of this two-hour pilot, even as a prologue, uh, and some people pointed this out, that we didn't, we have to take her entire relationship and mentorship and being a protege not just of Sarek, but then passed along to Georgiou, and their relationship we have to take that totally from their conversation walking around in the desert when we're still absorbing what's going on you know we just have to yeah. take it on faith when she says i've you've been with me for seven years and you're ready to take your own command well, i did
0: think that was funny because seven years with star trek excluding enterprise it's always been seven years and then that's been the end of the relationship because the series is finished so i did think that was funny because it's just like you've been with me for seven years talking about moving on captainship i'm thinking she's gonna die
1: (laughs) shenzhou the lost series right the seven years well and seven years of the pawn fire cycle yeah star trek and it's um but but we have to take that on faith so all the power and the drama of her stand you know they had they were under a limitation they didn't have the luxury of a series to reinforce that like when you saw Kirk and Spock and McCoy doing things in the movies you had 3 years of a series and 10 years of fan fiction, <laughs> you know, and animated and all that behind it. Exactly. Or you saw the next gen movies, and when those events would happen in the movies, you had the power of the series. So you don't have, when she, you know, when she neck pinches her captain, and then when the captain pulls a phaser on her first officer, you don't have, you, you're intellectually going with it. You don't have maybe the emotional res. It's still emotional. And you're going, and people in the audience are like, oh my God, like what? She neck pinched her captain? I mean, like, I don't know how it was when you saw it or where you were, but there were those emotions were still there. People in the audience, uh, On a premiere and a first-night audience, we're getting it. But we still, you can't replace what's not there, but we intellectually go with the flow because we know that's what the story means. But people going, gosh... Did they not? You know, then you—it's almost like you have to back up and say that was not just shocking to me watching it. It must have been doubly shocking to the people on the bridge, right? To each other, to the captain. We—we we don't get a sense of how Michael was, how Burnham was, just going along, going along, building here as a good officer based on her, her, her human and Vulcan, you know, overlap of her, her character, her morality, her leadership qualities, her decision-making stability. For that to really have registered—that's how strongly she felt in Serik's Vulcan advice for the situation, even though it was not a, you know, a rule by the book response, which of course we know all the best, you know, Kirk especially, but all the captains throw the book out when they need to. And that's what she was doing. She was just coming at it from an angle and, and a species that Georgiou was treating by the book and had no insight into, uh, which was a very normal, she's a heroic captain, but it was a very normal response and very prudent. But it's so, also
0: rooted in what we've seen as well in history. Just take Tuvok, for example. In Voyager, the amount of times that it was the logical thing to do, it was the wrong thing to do. Um, Like in, I think it was series one, he actually traded the stories of the Federation for this technology because he thought that's what his captain would have wanted to do if she wasn't put into this situation of having to sort of follow the regs. And right. so it, we've seen this with Vulcans before. They've followed a logical path but it's actually been the wrong one and again well and we and see starting it's with here. spock
1: in galileo 7 i mean mm. it was part of the probably the first time that was po- posited that way but right
0: so we've seen this throughout Star Trek as well and it's a difference in thinking, it's a difference in upbringing and all things like that and of course in one of the flashbacks in episode two where you first see Burnham actually arrive on the Xin How different she is, her whole mannerisms compared to what you see her seven years later. There's a huge difference, the acting was just phenomenal it really was great the way the same character was portrayed two different ways
1: right well when she beams aboard she's she's very much in the grip of her vulcan overlay to her human genes <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah and you know and buried the trauma of her her losing her parents and losing the Klingon. and at the moment it's kind of a moot point oh it's these weird aliens klingons who who knew when she came aboard that this would cycle back to be the people she was dealing with and how much of that was uh, as everybody else around her questions how much of this is you're throwing back to Some residual, you know, hate of, you know, the Klingon bastards, they killed my parents, you know, kind of a thing to merge scenes and people. And how much of this was the Vulcan logic talking and to her mind. And I guess the, you know, the, it it really, we as the audience got it that it was her Vulcan advice from Sarek, but nobody else had that. Everybody else thought it was being colored by. Her reaction to klingons and, and her parents so, so oh, i thought that was well done. yeah even though we were robbed of those seven years but i still think somebody was pointing out how crazy that was that they had somebody said you mean they've been together for seven years and she had no idea she would you uh, had no idea she could turn on her like that he's like no that's that's why it was such a powerful
0: moment yeah I'm crazy and, and the thing is the relationship has built up over the seven years but again Going back to, well, I'll bring up Voyager again, as people know, it's my favourite series. But with the Marquis and sort of the trust, even when it came to like Scorpion and other things like that, there's lots of places where it's just like, how could you have not had the trust? And there's always that little nagging thing. And even if you've known someone from, for years, something can set someone off because it's just that emotional to them. Or they the way they see it, they've basically got blinkers on. They It's tunnel vision. They just see one route and that's it. They can't see any other possibility. And it's just like, why would you ever do that? And that happens a lot of time with friends, with families. It's what causes a lot of disruptions within these close-knit communities now because Gene Roddenberry didn't want that in the show we haven't really explored that too much I think the closest we got was with Voyager between like the Marquis and Starfleet crew Enterprise where you've got like Trip with the Vulcans and all the stuff with T'Pol you'd sort of got quite a bit of that in there but For the other series, you hadn't really got that. DS9, you'd got a little bit with the Bajorans and some of the crew, but not a huge amount. And now, with the way they're going this time, we're really exploring these dynamics between the crews. It's not just the alien of the week sort of thing. And it's a very different way of approaching Star Trek. And for me... It's good. It helps people think about how that can relate to their own lives a little bit more than just a simple this is the plot. Right, right. Now, there's a lot that went on in the first two hours. What were the things that really stood out to you? I was
1: curious to see when the other, some of the other. Klingon house leaders started, had the little hollow conference. I was looking to see if we got some smooth heads or some, uh, some, <laughs> some hairy heads. Yeah, me too, me too. Um, I was looking in the, even just in the background of those non speaking actors, and I didn't see any yet, but I, again, there were what, five or six bodies there. So there's 24 houses. So that's okay. They're supposed to be out on the border. I had a couple of little nitpicky things. I wish they'd still replace the, the, the little dipper constellation map is what's on the board when the Klingon icons pop up on, on the scanner screen. And I know know at least a third to a fourth of the audience is going to know right off. They'll see those stars and realize it's the Little Dipper or the Big Dipper um, constellation is seen from Earth. So I wish they had not been on, you know, just grabbed a star map and just made up something would have been better than that. But a few little things like that you know the big bro my my overall concerns with the costumes and and the ship console you know, the interfaces and the consoles leading into the kirk's time i've had to like go okay the realities is art staffs chomping at the bit to show off what they can do and also look like it's the time that it's being done but i keep being reassured that things are actually going to lead into the kirk time and look maybe more than we suspect which is great um other than that story wise um i mean little tiny things i'm still i still go at hollow viewers and was hoping a lot of the the serek burnham communication was we could chalk it up to a long distance vulcan mind meld you know katra ish link or whatever she she could do a, a nerve pinch I'll, I'll give her that for having grown up on vulcan from from the age of seven
0: yeah because she's only the second person who's not vulcan to be able to do that because the seven of nine pinched Tuvok in one episode right uh, and and data did also but yeah human wise um, there's only right. two of them but yeah i think there's only three people who weren't vulcan because you yeah, had forgotten about data
1: and then there's a dele- I, now i'm i'm torn there's a deleted scene or not that was written for kirk to neck pinch one of the doctors in the hospital in star trek 4 but i think they decided not to right I, I i've i've heard about it and seen it so many ways both ways i'm trying to remember what whether it actually that's the sad thing about doing so much behind the scenes pre-work is <laughs> did that wind up being in or not is it i don't think out? it was it's horrible for me to say that, but um, if, if so, that would be another case. And they uh, they actually made a joke out of it. Huh, that finally
0: worked. Or, you know, whatever he says. <laughs> yeah, I don't recall that, but yeah, it's been... I think it was deleted, yeah. A while I, since I, I've, I've seen, it. seen it. Anyway. But yeah, I was looking at the background for all of them. But of course, 24 houses, we'd only got seven leaders. So even though there are 24 ships, So of course, Michael Burnham said 24 ships. In her rolling thought was it was actually... Each of the great houses, but for me, I don't think it is, and I think that goes to, again, bolstering lots of different parts. So you've got some of the Klingons that were affected by the eugenics virus. You've got some of the ones that still got the foreheads and the hair that we've seen, and then you've got this, these ones that have answered the call, which were ones which were sort of in that area because, of course, they all arrived around the same time. So it'll be interesting to see how things sort of develop going forward with that. Oh right, and and the and
1: the word is that this is not 15 episodes of ongoing Klingon war, and you know there there are standalone episodes going even while this gets looped back to. That's there, but it's not just 24/7 Klingon war because we get into a lot of the other character arcs that are coming. We hadn't even seen the Discovery crew, yeah, uh, you know who are going to be in for the long haul, and a lot of them have personal arcs and stories, and they're not all tied up with the Klingon war. And maybe we'll have some some standalone, at least. A if not B, B if not A stories in some of the other episodes that we Klingon were related. It'll be a little bit like some of the uh, yeah. Zindi War, Zindi season episodes that happened, even as the, that all lurked in the back, or the, the Dominion War on DS9. It was lurking in the background, even if it wasn't the focus of this episode.
0: Exactly, and from what they've said is we should be getting a lot more development from the Klingon, so we see a lot of things unraveling from their point of view, which we didn't tend to get previously. As you said, in the Dominion War, we did start to see things from the Cardassian side of things, but most of the shows... Again, Enterprise, they did stuff where we did start to see some stuff about the Zindi. But again, that was more once the crew were sort of more interacting with them um, instead of just it being there as part of the overall arc later on, just as a development.
1: Right. When they became relatable or humanized, the Zindi and yeah. the uh, and Cardassians both that you mentioned, when they became yeah. relatable and turnable, that's when they, yeah. Yeah, but this
0: time we're actually seeing what things are from the Klingon point of view right away. So everything from like them speaking the native language to their funeral rites and all this other stuff, which we've never had before. And... For me, I find that just so interesting.
1: Oh, yeah. It's the kind of thing that having a micro focus, it's the kind of thing this this format of storytelling lends itself to, right? That you can have the focus. For one thing, they're spending the money and it's amortized uh, over all these episodes. So they can go all in and spend that money for the makeup and the costumes and things they might not, they've never had before. And they might not use again, but 15 episodes is worth the investment. So... That's 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 one place where the format's helping broaden the storytelling in a in a world that's already pretty developed like Star Trek, but has all these unexplored corners.
0: Exactly. Now, I know time's running short for you. Is there any part of the I say the premiere episodes, um, because it was really one big episode, really, that you would like to discuss before we finish up? We've been
1: doing uh, kind of overall this overall. No, I'm just really anxious to see them get into One thing that's that struck me even after the premiere that I saw here at the L.A., you know, the gala premiere and the second viewing got back to me was that here's something to keep in mind. We didn't actually see we saw uh, Georgiou stabbed, right, laying unconscious on on the deck. We didn't see anyone, much less uh, Burnham run a scanner over her, a, a, you know, an actual medical scanner that did a biological scan and say she was flatline dead. And even if she had been, we've seen people come back from flatline. We see people come back from the death, quote unquote, now, much less in there was bang Star Trek future time, much less with mystical Vulcan, <laughs> Sarek, Cotred, mind-melded, you know, Vulcan powers imbued in her. Exactly. She, she reacted. Then she was beamed away before she wanted to be without her captain. And then when she's reporting in at her court-martial, she's talking about it, and she says, she never comes and says, my captain dead, if you, if you realize that. So yeah. m- we yeah. might see, maybe Georgiou's in a POW camp somewhere, and they've actually somehow, they've healed her, and maybe that's a bridge?
0: I did think I, that, because... Then I suddenly thought. I think it's on the third or fourth watch of it. I suddenly thought, oh, but is that in the heart that she got stabbed? Because it's very close to the heart area. I mean, mm,
1: right? We don't know what, for sure. But is yeah. that what they? But is that what they want you to think? See? Exactly.
0: As always, time will tell. And of course, I think a lot of what we'll see of Michelle Yeoh is actually her appearance in probably flashbacks, because we, as we know, a lot of this is following Michael Burnham. So a lot of this right. will be related to her experiences previously so we may just see her in the flashbacks instead. In, in yoda flashbacks yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i'm definitely interested to see where this all leads but i was very impressed with the first two episodes as i said i've already watched it five times already and for me here in the uk it literally got released 36 hours ago and i've been to work two days and slept so, <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I'm I'm also excited to see, you know, Captain Lorca and and Stamets and Saru and this crew and Dr. Culver and Stamets and Culver's relationship and young cadet Tilly. And I forget his name, character name, but Shazad Latif's POW, you know, PTSD character in the mix. I can't wait to see Rekha Sharma's Commander Landry, security officer. We had her on continues. I love her. I have a feeling that she may have the red shirt curse, even if she's not wearing red, literally, (laughs) because we haven't seen a lot out of her later on. But you know, I just I'm wanting to see what that goes. And I'm really curious overall to see if some of these reassurances in some quarters kind of subtle reassurances that don't we have not written off the Kirk era look yet. Don't don't give up on that. Yeah.
0: What I've enjoyed is there are so many callbacks to the original series. Even from the phaser, it's a sort of a mix between what we saw in the cage and what we saw actually in TOS itself. You've got like the term number one being used, which, of course, again, it's a callback to the cage again you've got the holographic comms which is a callback to what we saw in deep space nine there's just so many things even like the bridge sounds it's the original, the original. sounds right
1: i mean i still wince at the call if it, as long as it was Sarek and and burnham talking or communicating i could kind of chalk that up to you know vulcan mysticism but when it was the admiral on a hollow viewer i was kind of going yeah okay i'm just hoping that maybe like smooth touchscreen consoles and maybe that HoloViewer viewer they find out later are causing cancer or something, so they back off for a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, you've also got some things with the modern technology, as you'd expect. We see a lot more stuff that we've seen in the Kelvin timeline. So we've got the same sort of warp effects as well. Again, that's more based on what we know how things would probably look when it comes to if we could do warp. It's more accurate from what I've heard. So that's being used. I also love the fact when we see the Klingon ship for the first time, that you haven't got the ships all on the same axis. Right. Like the Shinzao is actually at a diagonal axis um, in comparison. And of course, when all the ships all come in, they're all slightly different as well. And one of the things, I also do a Babylon 5 podcast. One of the things I said is most science fiction shows all the time, they're always the same accesses, X and Y. It's almost like you haven't got any third dimension. There's no Z access in most of the science fiction programs, which Babylon 5 actually did. You've actually got things going in different ways. And I like the fact that you actually have this in this series. Oh, right.
1: Right, right. Well, I'm I'm just overall excited to see. I love that the premier, uh, Aaron Harberts and, and Ted Sullivan were all saying, you know, just just wait till episode three episode. This is good. But, you know, the real show starts at episode three. And that was not to dismiss this two hour prologue pilot, but it was just to be real and how much of the regular cast would not be there until episode three. So, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet as the old show, as the old uh, line goes. Exactly.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me and it's been great to catch up with you once again. And before you go, could you just reiterate how people can get hold of you?
1: Oh, well, sure, thanks. I can be found here in my apartment. (laughs) No, LarryNimichek.com is always the best central place. Portal 47 has a page, Portal47.net, where no savvy fan has gone before. And Twitter is at LarryNemichek, as is my YouTube channel. I really encourage everybody to go over and subscribe. I'm getting back to my uh, video chats with people. And on Facebook, it's LarryNemichek's Truckland as as well as my Instagram. So please check all those out. And again, I'm really trying to build up my uh, my YouTube subscriptions. There's over 100 video interviews there and I've got new ones to put up if I could just get through this crazy discovery debut time and get back to posting those.
0: Excellent.
1: Oh, and I should say we have a new podcast coming from Roddenberry's podcast network called The Trek Files. We recorded a couple and uh, they're going to be 15 minutes every week diving into some new and mostly unseen files and archival documents from Gene's uh, Uh, archives
0: so that's gonna be fun look forward to seeing all that well thank you everyone for tuning in please let us know what you think of star trek discovery how many times have you watched it even are there things that you do and don't like we're always as we've always said interested in what you have to say and you can get in contact with us all over the internet you can email us at hosts at newhorizons.show. you can also get us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash new horizons podcast you can get us on twitter at new horizons cast you can also find us at google plus you can get us at star trek riser and you can even leave us a voicemail just head over to our website and use the widget at the side of the page or go to speakpipe.com forward slash newhorizonspodcast. And you can even use the form on our website by going to the Contact Us page as well. So, no reason for you not to let us know what you think. We've even had people leave comments on the YouTube videos. So, until next time, thank you very much. Take care, everyone. Track well.
1: Sorry, the opening... um... (laughs) (laughs) And all's well!